At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. CNBC's coverage continues of the markets in a time of crisis and another record-breaking day on Wall Street in many ways. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you might be, everybody. I'm Brian Sullivan. Thank you very much for joining us here on CNBC. Perhaps a glimmer of a positive sign in the stock market today. The major averages, they closed higher. Not by much. We're not going to overdo it. But compared to what we've had the last couple of days, it was a bit of a sigh of relief, no doubt, for many. The Dow finishing up just 188 points or a roughly 1% gain. Technology did better. The Nasdaq up 2.3%. Among your big winners today, McDonald's, Disney, and Goldman Sachs. Today's move higher, though putting not really even a dent into this week's losses. The Dow is still down a staggering 12% just since Monday. Once again, a big story, energy. Check out oil, this time the opposite of yesterday, surging 24%. That's its best day ever. The U.S. government considering some political talk or action to get in front of that Saudi-Russia price war that's going on and flooding the market with oil. We're going to have much more on that during our big hour straight ahead. But first up, let's talk about this historic moment in a time for investors and trying to figure out what you should be doing right now with your money in the short, medium, and long term. Joining us once again is Scott Miner, Global Chief Investment Officer at Guggenheim Partners, one of the few who had expressed worry about these markets even before this health scare. Scott, we appreciate it. Uh, I would imagine your portfolios are holding up pretty well. If so, what are they composed of? What does Scott Minard own right now? Well, you know, Brian, going into this, as you know, for the last year or so, we, we've been invested very conservatively, uh, mostly in uh, U.S. Uh, Treasury and agency securities, uh, some very high-quality securities in, in corporate bonds and asset backs. But uh, uh, really, uh, we, we tried to stay as close to the sidelines as possible, uh, but that's changing for us. Um, you know, right now, given where the interest rate spread between U.S. corporate debt and treasuries is, uh, the, bond, the bond market is only traded uh, cheaper than where it is right now for credit securities like corporate bonds and high yield about 10% of the time. So, I mean, this is telling you that we're in the value zone, and uh, we are starting to uh, selectively look at picking up some value securities. Um, uh, what is a value security these days? Is it bonds? Is it stocks? Is it gold? Is it chicken stock? I think it's more, to be honest, be honest right now, I think it's more in the bond market than stocks. Um, I do believe that, uh, you know, we probably have another 10 to 15 percent of downside from here on stocks. Uh, the economic data is just starting to come through. Um, I mean, the earnings data is going to look really bad for most industries. So, um, you know, Brian, our drawdown uh, through yesterday was around 35 percent from the peak. Um, that doesn't compare to, you know, the drawdowns we've had in recessions in the past. Uh, those drawdowns are typically, you know, between 40 and 50 percent. So, you know, those stocks are getting attractive to some degree. Um, you know, I think there's still some uh, uh, risk here. And uh, the places where we're seeing forced liquidation uh, coming out of mutual funds and hedge funds, like in municipal bonds, uh, selected asset-backed securities, those are the places that, that we're finding real value, where you're being paid more for the risk than the actual risk that you're taking on. Yeah, and I want to show our viewers right now a long-term chart of the S&P 500, our graphics crew. Everybody's just been working hard, and a shout-out to them for just getting really anything done these days, and it's been great. Uh, this is a chart, Scott, I don't know if you can see it. It's, it's going back to basically 100 years ago. It comes from Bespoke Investment Group. Shows big drawdowns on the S&P 500, 49% in 2000, 56% in 08. We're down about 30 percent now. Is that one of the things you're looking at to say there's likely more downside in equities? Absolutely. I mean, let, let's assume this isn't as bad as the financial crisis. That's a big assumption. 
Uh, but look at the drawdown that you got back in uh, during uh, the 2001-2002 recession, you know, 49%. Uh, back in 74, uh, 48%. We're, we're only down, like I say, a little bit over 30% at this point. So, um, you know, we don't even have to get to financial crisis levels. Uh, but, you know, Brian, to be honest with you, um, there's a good reason to believe this is potentially worse than the financial crisis. And, um, you know, at this stage of the game, we probably should be having a little more caution uh, in our approach and, and making sure we're getting investments that uh, uh, pay you to take on the uh, the risk. You know, stocks went up today a little bit, volume heavy again, but we didn't seem to have that market chaos Although I will note a lot of the closed-in bond funds and bond funds that I watch that I've been talking about for a while now, they also fell today. Was there anything in the market internals that you saw, Scott, that gave you a reason to be a little bit optimistic? Um, You know, Brian, in in, uh, the stock market, not much. Uh, The one thing I would say is um, because of the forced liquidations we're getting now uh, out of uh, the the mutual funds, the hedge funds, um, I, I am starting to be more positive because, you know, one of the things that I've been talking about is uh, I'd like to see capitulation. And capitulation is just find me a bid at any price. And we're starting to get that sense of panic uh, uh, in selected parts of the fixed income market. Uh, I haven't seen that level of panic in stocks, to be honest. I, I haven't seen days Down where... Down 3,000 on the Dow was, was not the panic? Well, Brian, it's like, what, 10%. You know, I mean, it's a lot. panic would be a panic. Look at the stock market drawdown of 1987. We were 20% down in one day. So, you know, I, I don't think we've uh, had enough pain here yet. And, and too many people are, are talking about bottom fishing. Um, you know, uh, Bill Ackman, who I have a great deal of respect for, is a very good friend of mine, and I believe that he can pick, you know, superior companies. You know, is, is talking about a bottom. I don't know that I see a bottom right now. Well, Ray Dalio, who you probably also know, was on CNBC this morning, and he said that he thought there could be about $4 trillion worth of corporate losses in the market. Do you agree with that? Does that number seem high to you? And if so, what does that do to credit and thus equities? Uh, well, look, that, that, that number doesn't sound too outlandish at all. Um, you know, I think that basically just tells you um, you have more downside for uh, for both uh, corporate bonds and stocks. But, you know, one of the things I'll say is, again, I'll go back to the, the comment I made earlier. We are in the value zone here. That is, things are getting cheap. But one thing I like to remind people is value is a poor timing tool. And so uh, markets often overshoot more than we expect them to. And just because they're cheap, that doesn't mean they can't get cheaper. You know, the president today said he's okay, basically barring companies from buying back their own stock if they receive some sort of government help, aid, or a bailout. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I I do. I would take a a different approach uh, to it, though. I mean, and let's use Boeing as an example. Um, You know, they say they need uh, a $10 billion worth of uh, guarantees for their debt. If you went to a bank and you said, I want a guarantee for my debt, you know, they would charge you an annual fee, uh, maybe 50 basis points or uh, 1%. Um, and uh, I think that's what we should be doing. But in addition to that, I think that um, we should say, you know, look, in order to get this facility from us, you have to give us 20% uh, of your company in warrants, meaning you know, they're, they're essentially options, so if the stock goes up, you make money. Uh, I think the idea of us actually buying stock is probably more risky than we need to be. But, uh, you know, I think that the, 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 the Treasury is being called upon to act as a distressed investor, and the taxpayer deserves to be compensated as if it were a distressed investor. So, you know, maybe we get Steve Schwartzman or somebody to run the Treasury. Well, but, you, uh, but you th- you're the head of Blackstone, but you think that we should then take stakes in these companies, like, like Warren Buffett does. Exactly. I'd say, 
But I would even do it in a lower risk fashion. I would try to take it in warrants rather than having us write checks um, you know, into uh, the, the equity part of the capital structure. Because um, you know, if we can get senior debt uh, or claims on senior debt, the downside in a worst-case scenario is not as bad as having your equity wiped out. There's a lot of people I know, a lot of people you know, a lot of people are viewers. They might be watching right now that work at airlines and they work at Boeing. So this is no way an indictment of them, the workers, the rank and file out there who need a job. But it is a debate right now that is starting to be fired up. Airlines spent by some measures three, four trillion dollars on stock buybacks over the last decade. Boeing, 40 plus billion or so until they stopped their program last year. Do the airlines deserve a buyback after spending all that money buying back their own stock or a bailout, I should say? Well, I mean, look, I think that's a real uh, political conundrum. Um, the, the bailing out of uh, the financial services industry uh, and other companies uh, like General Motors in the wake of the financial crisis has proven to be political poison uh, for a lot of people in Washington. And so uh, my view is that uh, it is probably an essential evil in order to maintain uh, our, our economic system as it exists today uh, to do something like that. But I think that uh, it should be very carefully crafted uh, to basically not reward people who took on risk and then expected the taxpayer to bail them out. And that's why I think saying to a large company, uh, yes, we'll help you, but we want 20% of your, your company in exchange for that, or 30%, uh, is a way to justify that we're doing what's in the best interest for taxpayers. And one thing, Brian, you know, this sounds very similar to TARP. You know, TARP was a money-making exercise. You know, the, the, US, the U.S. Treasury made money on the TARP program. And, and I would look at this in the same fashion that Warren Buffett would or, you know, Steve Schwartzman. I would say, okay, great, let's find a way to make money for the, for the taxpayers. And now I'm going to leave it with this. Do you believe that the, the best stimulus, if you want to call it that, is going to be what Secretary Mnuchin floated, sending direct checks to families that have been impacted? Um, I think it's better than a payroll tax cut, but I don't... Well, you don't have a payroll. You don't have a payroll tax. Exactly, right? Um, but I think it's um, uh, it's probably not the best approach. Um, I think it would be more powerful to uh, increase uh, unemployment benefits and extend them uh, for people that are unemployed, because for people who are not unemployed... Uh, to be getting an extra check in the mail every month seems to be uh, an inefficient mechanism to use to allocate uh, taxpayer money. Uh, I think the money should be directed to the people that need it. And by the way, you know, my biggest complaint of uh, the uh, financial crisis and how it was handled is it didn't address the issues of the common person and Main Street. And we need to make sure this time that we're addressing the issues of people who need help and not come out of a, po- a program yep. here where we make income inequality and wealth inequality even worse. All right, Scott Minard, Guggenheim Partners. Scott, we appreciate you taking some time for us. Thank you very much. Have a good night. Stay safe. Thanks. All right, now let's bring in three others you know so well and need to hear from on a night like tonight, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, and Dan Nathan. All right, Guy, I'll start with you. Uh, you heard Scott say that just because things get cheaper – doesn't make them a good value. Yeah, I mean, if you, we've been saying that for weeks now. I mean, I, I respect Scott a lot, and he's sort of echoing what we've said. I mean, if you've watched the show, which hopefully a lot of people have, when the market was down 20%, I know categorically I said you can make a very cogent argument here that although the stock market is cheaper, stocks are not cheaper, and stocks should actually be more expensive than they were at the time. So I agree with them wholeheartedly, uh, you know. It just because the market is down, whatever it is now, 29% or thereabouts, I mean, who's to say that stocks are not more expensive today than they were a month or so ago? So I, I agree with that. It doesn't mean the market can't trade higher from here, and it doesn't mean there weren't some encouraging signs. 
But if you're asking me to comment on what he just said, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, Tim, you know, we showed that long-term chart back in 08. The market fell, what, you know, 56% back in 2000. It was 47% or so back in the 73 during sort of the, the oil crisis. The markets fell. Do you think there's more downside here to the broader market? Well, you know, we, we just still have so much uncertainty on leverage in, in the corporate system at this point. Now, quickly, the leverage turns when your your revenue stream is cut down to, you know, 40 percent. And in some cases, obviously, it's below that right now, leaving aside the travel industry. But what's going on with, with at least uh, leverage exposure in the banking sector, et cetera. Uh, to me, this is about where we came into this. Um, and, and part of this is, is the positioning of, of markets, uh, which were priced to perfection and then some. Um, and, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about if companies get aid from the government, they, they have the mandate is they will not be buying back shares. If you think about the growth in S&P earnings over the last five years, 30 to 40 percent of that came from share buybacks. Um, and so, you know, you had an even more uh, overinflated S&P. Um, the velocity of this move is what's made this you know, one of those moments that's beyond anything we've seen since the financial crisis and at times has exceeded the financial crisis. Uh, and some of this is a combination of uh, the excess leverage that was in the system. Uh, and I think you know, the central bank was encouraging taking risk and grossing up your portfolios. Scott Minard, other people, uh, I've talked about this. The, the amount of gross leverage in portfolios is something that needed to come in drastically. So um, I, I do think we've, we've repriced a, an enormous amount. I would just say that you have the, the haves and the have-nots in this post-virus economy. Um, and I do think that there are companies that, right, at least for the next foreseeable future, will take three to four years to get back to their 2019 uh, actual earnings profile. Dan, did you take anything positive away from the market action? I know we've got this, by the way, I don't want to spook people. We've got this giant options expiration coming tomorrow. And I wonder or I fear if today was a little bit of the calm before the storm because of that. Well, well, it could be. I mean, Fridays have been particularly volatile. We're not talking um, so about so called. When you ask me about bailouts. today and the price action able to actually close up a little bit, I think, is a Herculean task. You know, last night, I think a lot of us were looking at the S&P futures uh, locked down at one point. Um, so, you know, they did a lot of heavy lifting. The other one, I know Guy has been talking about this a lot, just the movement in the Treasury market. I mean, the 10-year Treasury yield closing down a few bips. That's actually probably pretty good. I don't think anybody wanted to see um, too much more velocity to the upside off of that low last week. So I think that investors would be you know, really happy with a whole heck of a lot of just, just kind of nothingness over the next couple of weeks. Let's settle in here a little bit. Let's get a little more uh, visibility on what the fiscal packages look like. And key word there, packages, plural, um, because we know that there's one, the market hasn't really particularly taken that um, too well. Um, but we know we need to know what else comes, uh, you know, with that. So to me, I think that this is pretty decent action. Um, let's make sure that people don't panic because they hear things like quad witching and this and that or whatever. It's nothing, people. You have them four times a year. OK, so the point here is that expiration is going to cause a little more volatility. You're going to see maybe some more different price action on the opening close. No cause for alarm here. Focus on the things. How are we tackling this health crisis? What is the visibility on that? What is the visibility on the Fed? They come out with new things every day. What is Congress yeah. and the president doing? Those are the things that are really going to stem the downward volatility. And, and you know, and it's, risk, it's risk guy, that there's a, probably a percentage of the population. I'm sure we got a lot of viewers who are like, hey, I got to tune into CNBC because of what's going on that aren't regular viewers. And that's fine, by the way. Hello and welcome. But the, people may not realize the market will bottom out before the worst of the bad news. Whatever that bad news is, the financial crisis, oil embargo, whatever it might be, the market will sort of give us that signal that not everything's going to be good in the short term, but the market will both fall and rise before the peak of the good or bad news. Where do you think we are in that cycle? Yeah, I agree with that. I, you know, listen, I wish, you know, I'm not arrogant enough to answer that question, and I'm not suggesting anybody in this call is, but, you know, I think... It, God, God rest the soul of Mark Haynes, and within a day or two, he called the bottom in 2009. And respectfully, I think there are a lot of people that are trying to take over that, over that throne, and I'm not going to be one of them because I don't know. But what I'll say is, to Scott's earlier point, I think you're going to know it when you see a capitulation day that really feels bad. Now, obviously, we've had some pretty ludicrous days that have felt awful, but I don't think we've seen the real capitulation date. Now, what I'll say on the encouraging note, 
and we've talked about this for months, the Russell, the IWM never verified that all-time high in the S&P 500, and we were concerned about that. But today, on a generally benign day, you had the Russell, which has gone down 40% in the course of a couple of weeks, was actually up 4% today. So I take some solace in that. I also take some encouragement that the bond market seems to be slowing down and stabilizing, whatever that yield's going to wind up being. I think that's encouraging as well. And in this environment, you could absolutely see a day where the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 3,000 points, and that's the headline. But I don't think that's going to be yeah. the end of this thing. So that's just my opinion. Tim, well, we, we need your opinion. Tim and Dan, sit tight for a second now. We're going to come back to you. Right now, I want to go to Washington because lawmakers are reportedly moving ever closer to coming up with another aid or stimulus package. Let's get the latest reporting on that with Kayla, who is in D.C. Kayla. Well, Brian, we are expecting Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell momentarily to unveil the Republican version of this stimulus package and then begin negotiations with Democrats after that. Here's what we know so far is expected to be in this. The Treasury Secretary said it will include payments of $1,000 to every adult and $500 for every child. Lawmakers, I'm told, are discussing a qualifying income threshold for this. There will also be a program to keep small businesses making payroll and loans to what McConnell calls nationally important industries, but they will not, he assures, be bailouts. We're not talking about so-called bailouts for firms that made reckless decisions. Nobody is alleging a moral hazard here. None of these firms, not corner stores, not pizza parlors, not airlines, brought this on themselves. Now, one company that lawmakers suggest privately has been reckless is Boeing. After a year under fire for safety and technology lapses, restaurants, hotels and other Main Street businesses have been sidelined by an act of God. This is the view on Capitol Hill, while Boeing is embroiled in a crisis of its own making. On Capitol Hill and at the White House, a potential rescue of Boeing is being compared to AIG, the insurer who used cash from customer policies to load up on toxic debt and then needed a lifeline from the government, which the government gave it in exchange for an 80 percent equity stake and replacing the entire management team at the company. Now, President Trump earlier today, Brian, said that he would support tying strings to some of these packages to make sure that the government got these deals on their own terms. The question now is, in order to rescue Boeing, what terms is the U.S. government going to demand? Maybe taking the stake as you've talked about, Kayla. Thank you very much. Kayla Tausche in D.C. Tim, I'll go to you on that. Do you believe that, it, that A, Boeing deserves some kind of aid package, and B, if it does, should the U.S. government become a stakeholder, uh, basically a seat at the board table? Look, if you believe that the U.S. airlines, this was not of their doing, it's not of Boeing's doing. Um, Boeing, as a stock, was trading at 340 uh, in the midst of this crisis that was self-made. Um, and if the market's a weighing machine uh, or a voting machine, it's definitely a voting machine. Uh, ultimately, it's a weighing machine. But Boeing wasn't uh, seemingly going out of business um, during uh, what's still a very difficult uh, 737 MAX uh, story for the company. So, um, look, Boeing's problems right now are, are leverage that, that is coming from not selling any planes to companies, to airlines who are grounding fleets and who are no longer collecting revenue. Um, Boeing has an enormous defense business, which is more important than its commercial aircraft business. And, and I think absolutely Boeing is not only going to be saved, but I don't think Boeing, uh, in the context of, of not blaming the pizza parlor and not blaming the corner deli, um, Boeing shouldn't be blamed for what's going on with airlines who are their customers in terms of buying planes in a traditional format. We know that they have some uh, a lot of work to do with the FAA. We know that even in a best case market scenario, uh, they were hoping to get back in the air in, you know, call it uh, late second quarter, early third quarter. Um, but they had gone in the other direction in terms of talking about um, that that timeline. And again, I think they got religion as it relates to uh, trying to get ahead of the FAA. So to me, when I think about Boeing uh, in the context of all of this, um, they are a, a domino that's fallen uh, both on sentiment and, and really as a function of what's going on in in the travel world. $398 stock last April, $98 stock today. Uh, I want to get to Dan in a second. We've got actually breaking news on Boeing. For that, of course, let's go to Phil Lebeau in Chicago. Phil. Brian, Boeing has just announced that Nikki Haley 
has resigned effective immediately from the Boeing Board of Directors. And essentially it comes down to this. She says that she is opposed to a government bailout, which is what Boeing is pursuing in Washington, a $60 billion bailout that would not only be for Boeing, but they also say for the aviation industry overall. So again, Nikki Haley, who's only been on the Boeing Board of Directors, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a little over a year and a half, maybe two years, uh, is resigning from the Boeing Board of Directors effective immediately. And, and basically, she says, I am opposed to government bailouts. And if we're going to go down that road, I do not want to be a part of the Boeing team. Brian, back to you. There you go. Nikki Haley is out. Uh, Dan Nathan, you see any value in Boeing? Of course. I mean, here's the value in Boeing. The tens of thousands of employees, the hundreds of thousands of people in the supply chain, the fact that it's one of the U.S.'s largest exporters um, around the world here. There's value in the airline industry, in the cruise industry, in the auto industry. All of these businesses will need to be bailed out because it's our way of life. And the fact that they've been bailed out before, and as Scott Miner called it, political poison some 10, 11, 12 years ago, it really doesn't matter here because we are at a, you know, in back for our financial lives right here. All these companies need to be saved. And I think it's really important if you're looking at Boeing that two months ago was at 340 and now it's at $95 to understand one thing. No matter who bails them out, whether it's Warren Buffett or the government, that there's going to be equity dilution and that $95 will be less when that bailout happens here. That's why these stocks are not rallying right now on supposed good news. All you have to do is go back to 2008 and look at how the bank stocks acted when there were rumors about who's going to get bailed out and why and what the political ramifications were. It didn't really matter. They needed the backstops, but the equities went much lower after the backstop happens. And I think that you should be prepared for that. In yeah. Days. Well, by the way, one political force out, Nikki Haley. But uh, let's not forget, Caroline Kennedy is still a member of the Boeing board, obviously somebody with with deep ties there. Let, let's talk about it. I mean, Tim, at some point, uh, these companies, they're trying to hang on to their dividends. I get that in a sense. But should all these companies that are talking about a bailout or whose stocks are already down 70 percent, do they let the dividends go or do they hang on because they feel the equity would just collapse even further? Look, I mean, I think we've seen this with GE and, and other companies over the years um, that were uh, dividend payers almost to their own detriment. Um, and it almost seemed as if that was really what it was all about. Of course, you cut the dividend. Um, and but just really quickly, I mean, look at Airbus's chart. Okay, they, they didn't have any plane mishaps. Um, Airbus's chart has done the exact same thing. So uh, I just encourage people. I'm not in favor of bailouts uh, universally. In fact, I used to walk around with a T-shirt that said, where's my bailout after the 2008 crisis? Um, but I, I do think if we're calling this um, kind of that moment where you, you have a unique force majeure situation uh, as related to this virus, uh, you know, Anyway, back back to you know where where we are with companies paying uh, dividends, like I, I and and share buybacks. It's very clear, as I said earlier, where a lot of the EPS and the S and P was coming from. Um, I think ultimately uh, engineering earnings is something that gets the C the C suite paid, uh, yeah. which often is through stock, and, and that's something that I think we have to be very wary of. That 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 corporate tax cut um, was something that largely went in in terms of buybacks. Uh, and I think and dividends. And I think it's something that uh, absolutely let's pay attention to that. And, and I think there should be strings attached to, uh, to 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 bailouts that go to industries. Guy, what are you looking for tomorrow? Well, I tell you, I mean, the Boeing conversation is fascinating. And, I, and I'm with Dan and Tim. I, it's probably the single most important company in the United States. And I'm not a CFO and I'm not a politician. But in one way, shape or form, Boeing can't go away. Number one. Number two, out of many fascinating things today, and Dan Nathan flagged this in our call earlier, but I was watching it as well. People saying, what's wrong with gold? Well, the GLD was down 2% today. I get it. But look at the GDX. The gold miners were up 8%. I have not seen a divergence like that in those two things, maybe ever. Now, I'm saying ever, but I'm sure there's going to be somebody that's going to at me. But that's fascinating. And I think that speaks to a couple of things. But don't discount gold right now just because the GLD was down. So that's what I'm watching, Brian. Right, Dan, one final comment to you. Yeah, so into the close. Wasn't a great close. It was still green. Um, maybe expect some weakness on the morning, uh, you know, after the opening or something like that. But if we can kind of do again what we did today is come up from the lows, kind of hang in there, close green, have yields not go too much lower or too much higher, um, then we can maybe set the foundation for what could be a nice little rally for a couple of weeks and have a little bit of a cool-off period. That's what we need right now. All right. Tim, Guy, Dan, guys, appreciate it all. Thank you very much. 
Well, while stocks did bounce higher today, the big story as far as bounces go was in the oil market. Oil just handed in its best day ever, but still on pace for its worst month ever and basically just gained back what it lost yesterday and is still at $25 a barrel. The Wall Street Journal reporting that the United States government could try to intervene somehow politically in the oil war that's going on right now between Russia and Saudi Arabia. Let's bring in Optimize Advisors, Mike Coe. Mike, you've been in the trenches as an oil trader prior to doing what you're doing now. What is your take on these huge and sort of bizarre swings for oil? Yeah, I think the most important thing is that we actually have to keep today's move up in context, right? So in percentage terms, obviously, it was a huge move. But materially for the industry, we're still in in very deep trouble. And, you know, the, the price of oil that we usually look at is WTI, West Texas Intermediate. Brian, I know you have a lot of experience in the in the energy business. And, you know, the other sort of benchmark for crude that we talk about is Brent. And for quite some time uh, over the course of the last several weeks, even before the most recent uh, very sharp declines as a result of demand destruction related to the virus, we were already seeing big bets being made that the spread between WTI and Brent would widen. It obviously has, has done that. But I think people need to understand that, you know, this is a perfect storm for domestic oil and gas, uh, and it's a perfect model for understanding how economics and supply and demand work. The situation is really a very easy one. It comes down to this. The world is producing tremendous amounts of oil. The United States is the largest producer in the world. Uh, we're producing 13 million barrels a day or so right about now. That's up from about 12 million a day a year ago and less than 10 million. Uh, in the same period in 2018. Meanwhile, Russia and Saudi Arabia and, and basically you know, the rest of the oil-producing world had reached some sort of consensus on production. They basically gave up on that. And the Saudis are talking about increase, you know, they've increased their production by about 2.5 million barrels. Put this in perspective. The world uses, in round numbers, about 100 million barrels of oil per day. And about 10% of that comes from, you know, probably air. So we're going to see huge destruction of demand there, maybe as much as 30%. So you start adding all these things together, and you start seeing very big supply-demand imbalances on a daily basis. I think it is obviously a smart thing for the U.S. government at this point to step in and fill the strategic petroleum reserve, which I think had excess capacity of just over 70 million barrels. But if you start talking about, a supply-demand shift mm-hmm. in the neighborhood of 5, 6 million barrels a day, you're going to start running out of any available storage. And that's when you get into a situation like the one we find ourselves in right now. And I'm not sure that you know today's bounce tells us that, that it's all over. Yeah, it's been truly incredible moves. And maybe we can get Russia and Saudi Arabia back to the table, although it feels like those dogs have sort of left the doghouse, if you will. Mike Coe, thank you very much. All right. And of course, for more on today, the markets, what's ahead, the coronavirus, tune in tonight to our special report, Markets in Turmoil, 7 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, more on the big move that we saw today from Citigroup. What are the banks trying to tell us right now? Chris Whalen is here and some breaking news on Airbnb and their funding. We'll get that from Deirdre Bosa, who broke the story. That's next. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. All right, and welcome back. Let's get you up to speed with the very latest on the global fight against the coronavirus. Frank Collins is back at CNBC HQ with that. Frank. Hey there, Brian. Well, there's a sharp increase in coronavirus cases in New York City. The latest numbers from Mayor Bill de Blasio show 3,615 positive cases and 22 deaths. It's an increase of more than 1,100 cases since Governor Andrew Cuomo's update at mid-morning. And the head of the National Guard Bureau says he expects tens of thousands of Guard members to be called up to help deal with the coronavirus outbreak. 2,000 Guard members are active in 27 states. He says there are still many in reserve. 
There is no need right now to have 450,000 guardsmen on duty in any given state. As states need the National Guard to react to this pandemic, governors have the authority to bring them on, uh, on active duty, as there are tasks and purpose for them to be used. And staff workers who were sick with COVID-19 helped spread the virus among elderly patients at several life care facilities around Seattle, the first epicenter of the virus here in the U.S. That's according to a CDC report that also faults the long-term care facilities for not having enough personal protective equipment or sanitizer for its workers. The company has not commented. As always, for more coronavirus coverage, head to CNBC.com. Brian, back over to you. Brian Cullen, thank you very much, buddy. Be well. All right, still ahead. A startup slowdown of the wild market swings could take a big toll on Silicon Valley's big plans coming up. And later, maybe a silver lining in the market madness. We're going to tell you what has been going on in the C-suite that could be some good news for all you nervous investors. We're trying to end the show every day with a little bit of something, folks. And we got it for you coming up. Stick around. And welcome back to CNBC's continuing coverage of the markets in turmoil. And the big banks getting a bit of a bounce today in the market. Regional banks, they largely rose today, but must be cold comfort. Most of these stocks are still on pace for their worst week ever, some down 30 and 40 percent this week. Let's talk more about the banks and what they may be telling us. Joining us is Chris Whalen, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, and somebody who was right in the thick of it about 12 years ago when we had a different issue with the banks. Chris, it's good to chat with you, I guess. Uh, what has the move lately in the bank stocks told you about their health? Well, I think the exemplars, J.P. Morgan, U.S. Bank, or the ones I follow, I own U.S. Bank, uh, have kind of stabilized a little over book value because people are doing the math and they're thinking about loan losses and earnings. And I I think at this point, they're willing to buy them. I've been buying some of the preferreds, which have sold off quite a lot. They're they're great value. So if you don't believe the world's going to end, I would take a look at some of the banks because they've sold off considerably. I mean, cities below half a book. Uh, Goldman's down at 0.6 times book. So there's certainly some value here. It really just depends on your view of the world and your time horizon. Yeah, I mean, Goldman Sachs has truly been sort of an incredible story. A $250 stock a couple of months ago, $150 stock now. And the one thing I will know about this time in the market is that the market is active. Yeah, the economy is going to struggle. We're probably already in recession. I think you'd agree with that. But some of these banks, maybe, do they seem like they're unfairly punished because Everybody I know on Wall Street that can, who can get their computer working, is working constantly. That's right. And it's not so much that we're punishing them, Brian. It's just we don't know what to do with these credits. Uh, A month ago, you saw credit costs still very low, trending up a little bit, but they were not a concern. Now, all of a sudden, credit's in your face. And you have hundreds, thousands of companies out there that have effectively been downgraded. And the street doesn't know what to do with these credits because they, they don't have any guidance. It'll take a year or more for the rating agencies to catch up to this. So it's going to take time to work out what value is. But I got to say, if you look at the exemplars in the group, uh, it, it's hard not to want to own J.P. Morgan at book value. Uh, I may even go buy some myself. I've, I've liked U.S. Bank because I think it's kind of a nice surrogate for both large and small banks. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's some great examples. I mean, American yeah. Express is the best-performing bank in the United States. It's trading down at only three-and-a-half times buck. <laughs> it's come off. Uh, Schwab is at two. When they announced the E-Trade transaction, it was at three-and-a-half. So I think, you know, for people who like financials, uh, this is an interesting situation. And, and I think today is going to be typical of what we're going to see for a while. You know, when I look at something like the LQD, it's an investment grade bond ETF. It's just one of many, by the way, but it, it's the biggest. Uh, so I'm going to throw that up there. That's down 17 percent this year. Really an unprecedented move for a bond ETF, which is the whole selling point is sort of stability and a little bit of income. Do you believe that things like this are falling? Because to your point, we're going to have a wave of credit downgrades, which means forced selling by certain entities that cannot hold certain levels of debt. 
That's right. And you also had a bunching effect, Brian. You had an enormous number of issuers that were just barely investment grade because that's how you get the highest equity returns. This is the Wall Street model, right? So now the environment's changed, and many of those credits, if they came to market, would be high yield. They'd be junk, and they're going to become junk soon. So the market's already aware of this. They just don't know quite what to do with it on an issuer-by-issuer basis, and that's what we got. Yeah, we saw Occidental got downgraded to to junk today by Moody's, the big big oil company. Chris Whalen, we appreciate you joining us. I have a feeling we're going to be chatting again soon. Thank you. Oh, I got my Skype library all, all, all ready for you, Brian. I can't wait to see it. We're trying to find a little <laughs> levity in these serious times. I'm going to we change my pick. I'm going to put some Easter eggs right. up. All right. Thank you very much, Chris. All right. Coming up, the coronavirus drawing up Silicon Valley's deals. What is next for these unicorns and wannabe unicorns? How will this affect funding in Silicon Valley? We're going to talk more about that and a focus on Airbnb coming up. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. All right, we've got a big interview on CBC coming your way tomorrow. The new CEO of McDonald's sitting down for an exclusive interview with us here on CNBC. Of course, closing most of their company-owned stores to everything but takeout and pickup and drive-through traffic. So what does McDonald's see and what are they doing about their workers? Catch that interview tomorrow, 3 o'clock Eastern time. Well, we have certainly seen our share of historic moves on Wall Street over the past two weeks. The wild swings are sending shockwaves to the heart of Silicon Valley as well. Let's get more out of Kate Rooney, who's got more on how venture capital money is starting to run dry. And maybe an answer to what everybody wants to know is, what the heck is that painting behind you, Kate? <laughs> That's the question of the hour. It is Lake Tahoe. <laughs> it's a poster. So, yeah, pretty bare bones back here. But anyway, venture capital. So those investors are telling me a lot of deals are on hold until we get past this coronavirus uncertainty. And startup valuations may take a hit. One factor at play here, those in-person meetings to evaluate startup management teams can't happen. It's hard enough to build trust over Zoom meetings, and that might mean that they won't take these huge capital investments. Sequoia Capital recently calling coronavirus the black swan of 2020 for their industry, saying private financing could soften significantly as it did in previous downturns. Other firms warning of cuts to valuations. In a weaker economy, investors aren't as comfortable betting on future growth. VCs were already changing their outlooks in the wake of WeWork and putting more emphasis on profits. None of this bodes well for startups with high cash burn that needed to raise money this quarter. Another factor, credit markets. Many telling me they won't be using debt in the near term. Investors are describing this as an only the strong survive environment right now. But it's worth noting, Brian, some high profile companies, Square, Stripe, Uber and Instagram, for example, were born out of the 2008 financial crisis. Back to you. All right, Kate Rooney. Kate, thank you very much. Well, there appears to be one big exception to this funding slowdown. CNBC Deirdre Bosa just broke the story on CNBC.com around Airbnb. Deirdre, what's the news on Airbnb? Well, what Kate says is totally accurate. But at the same time, a lot of VCs say that for high-quality companies with paths to profitability that are not burning through cash, They will always be able to get funding, even in the depths of the financial crisis. And there's examples from past time. But Airbnb could be one of them. Two sources familiar with the matter telling me that Airbnb is considering raising money in the current environment 
key, Brian, will be at what valuation. I'm told that that is still under discussion. Now, the home sharing startup has been hit hard, of course, by the coronavirus outbreak. They've had to expand their cancellation and refund policy, and it's thrown their planned IPO for this year in doubt. But sources say that it is fielding interest from a variety of funds, from venture capital to private equity, even sovereign wealth funds. For Airbnb's part, though, they do have ample cash. Remember, $3 billion in cash on its balance sheet, plus access to $1 billion in a line of credit. Um, I spoke to Ron Conway. He is a well-known angel VC in Silicon Valley, also a very early Airbnb investor. And he told me that the startup is more nimble. He certainly thinks the startup's more nimble than some of its competitors like Expedia and Booking Holding. And he thinks that if they raise cash, that's an opportunity and it could set them up really nicely for when global travel does come back, it will make them even more nimble. Of course, Brian, I said it at the beginning, valuation is certainly going to be a sticking point. Can they raise it at their last private market valuation, which was $31 billion? And it also seems like with the news on Uber today, I mean, we're going to find out. The tide's going to go out. We're going to find out what emperor may be swimming with cash and who is highly illiquid. I mean, having cash right now is going to be king. Absolutely. And Uber had its IPO, thankfully, last year. So it raised a bunch of cash. And the CEO had to get on a call with analysts and investors today and essentially reassure them that they will not run out of cash by the end of this year if their rides decline by some 80%. It would still have $4 billion in ample cash on its balance sheet, which if you think about it, the tens of billions of dollars that Uber has raised over the year, it would have $4 billion left. That really shows you how much some of these companies are burning through money, and you would think it would be very hard for them to raise money at you know their previous private round valuation. Remember, Uber was once worth $76 billion. Today, I think their market cap is about $35 billion. Those were the days, literally. Deirdre Bosa, thank you very much. You can read more Deirdre's reporting on our website, cnbc.com. She broke that Airbnb story. All right, coming up, we're going to break out your Friday playbook and, as we promised, a little bit of maybe good news in the equity markets. Trying to end the show every day with a little something because it's just so serious out there now. We're going to have that for you coming up here on Fast Money. Stick around. All right, welcome back. There is a live look at the National Mall in Washington, D.C. It's not that cold. you got some people out there running in shorts and T-shirts. But as you can see, and if you're familiar with the mall, and most of you are, normally be packed with people pretty much this time of year. A lot of schools are on spring break right now, pretty much completely empty. And by the way, I didn't even think about this. Tonight is the start of spring. I think the vernal equinox, or whatever the equinox is, at 11.48 p.m. So tomorrow... It will be spring, perhaps a reason to look up. All right. We are closing the books on another wild day on Wall Street. And tomorrow could get even a little bit wilder because, as you heard us talk about earlier, an event called quadruple witching takes place. Well, that's when options and futures contracts on stocks and indexes all expire at the same day. Basically, four major types of contracts, thus the quad in quadruple witching. So that could add... For more volatility in what has been a very volatile week, let's talk more now about how you should position yourself heading into tomorrow. Joining us is Steve Grasso, Director of Institutional Sales at Stuart Frankel. Steve, what are you expecting tomorrow? So obviously, Brian, you're going to get an exacerbated uh, upside volume explosion. Uh, but the, you're going to have a little bit less than you would think because the S&P and the Dow uh, have basically postponed their rebounds, but the FTSE and the Russell are still doing it. So what does that mean? If you had all of them doing it, the volume would have probably been uh, exponentially higher than where you see it now. But you're still going to notice a heck of a lot of volume uh, on the opening and the close, and it's more geared to the close. So don't read into it. And if you remember back in the end of February, I was on the desk. You and I chatted. I said, don't get so excited about this run-up at the month end because you have a lot of rebalancing happening. So what happens is, People get in what their equities have to buy because everything has been so beaten up, creates an event that for uh, fund managers to have to add to the equity side. So they are forced to buy equities because they're less of a percentage of their overall portfolios. So what does that mean? They buy them at the end of February. It runs up in two or three days, 10%. Then they sold back off 27%. Now, I'm not saying they have 27% downside in them if they run it up tomorrow and the next couple of days, 
but it's something to be uh, conscious of because remember those levels you and I discussed right around 2000. So you have that 2350 level in the S&P, that's pseudo support. That's the old 2018 uh, low. Then you have the new low, 2280 in the S&P. But keep it round numbers, 2000 in the S&P, that is your most concrete support. Below that, we get to that 1700 mark. Let's hope we don't visit 2000. Let's hope we don't visit 1700. But I wouldn't read too much into the explosive volume that you're going to get tomorrow. And the next couple of days, you could have some upside events happening. Keep an eye on good quality companies that are going to be around in three years. And the flip side of it is the companies that have poor balance sheets, Brian, are more likely to get bailed out. So you have those energy names, the airlines names, the hotels, the car companies, even everything branded around that. You could see some bailout on names that you wouldn't think otherwise should rally. All right, Steve Grasso. Steve, we appreciate it. We're going to watch it tomorrow. It could be a big day. Thank you very much. All right, every night we said we're going to try to leave you with a little bit of good news in a time where we could all use some. Of course, we're doing it from a CNBC angle. So here's tonight's executives have started buying their own company stock either at or nearly at record levels. According to InsiderScore.com, last week, more than 1,300 top executives got into the market. Small caps, energy, financial company executives, they had more buyers than at any time in their history, even more than at the depths of the financial crisis. And insider buying across the entire market is getting close to that level as well. It is now at its highest level since November of 2008. So who's doing the buying? Insider score shows a few big companies with longtime execs picking up their own stock, like Freeport MacMoran, PacWest, Live Nation. And the biggest buyer is our CNBC friend, Marcus Lemonis, Camping World, doing a lot of insider buying. Now, insider score notes that they're not calling a market bottom because CEOs aren't perfect market timers, but they do note. CEO buying peaked in late 2008. Maybe a little good news in the market front. Be well. We'll see you tomorrow. Mad with Jim starts now. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.